following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. I found in him a friend so strong and true. I would tell you how he changed my life completely. He did something that no other friend could do. No one ever cared for me like Jesus. There's no other friend so kind as he. No one else could take the sin and darkness from me. Oh, how much he cared for me. All my life was full of when Jesus found me All my heart was full of misery and woe Jesus placed his strong and loving arms around me And he led me in the way I ought to go No one ever cared for me like Jesus, there's no other friend so strong as he. No one else could take the sin and darkness from me. Oh, how much he cared for me. darkness from me 
how much he cared for me. Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress. I woke up this morning early. I had a number of pastoral calls I had to make before I prepared for radio. I woke up this morning with a song of joy in my heart saying, Thank you, Jesus. I have another day on the radio to speak to your people. I have another day to confront darkness. I have another day to serve you. Thank you, Jesus. I've been enduring. I don't like the word endure, but it's a very important biblical word. We're called to endure with joy. So it was a pleasure to wake up this morning and say, Lord, thank you for another day. Thank you for a day to proclaim your word and and minister to your people. I can't think of a greater privilege. I'm Ray Greenley. I pastor the National Prayer Chapel in Woodbridge, Virginia. It is a privilege to speak with you about the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I'm going to share a story with you about Charles Finney and his ministry that will focus us sharply on a passage of Scripture in the book of Titus. Now, part of the journey as a pastor has been facing the disapproval not just of pagan people, but of God's people. You can't do that. You can't say that. You can't be that. You have to be this, because this will bring shame on us and all such accusations. That's been a very painful part of the journey all of my life as a minister of the gospel, because I'm not trying to establish an institution. I'm calling for a body, a body of people who will love and accept who will live in righteousness and holiness, a people who will put away their strong opinions about their own stuff and put their confidence in Jesus. It's encouraging to me that Charles Finney faced the same kind of struggle. The year was 1826. A pastor from the First Presbyterian Church in Auburn, New York, came to Utica to witness the revival there, and he urged me to go out and labor for a time with him in the summer of 1826. I complied with his request and went there and labored for him. 
I had known that a considerable number of ministries east of Utica were taking an attitude of hostility to the revivals. Side note, I know there are quite a number of people who take, how shall I put it, an attitude of hostility toward the gospel of holiness. Never mind that this gospel that I preach is the orthodox gospel of the New Testament church. It's not the Calvin doctrine. It's not the Luther doctrine. It's it's the gospels. It's Jesus. It's the apostles. It's the entire first 200 years of the New Testament church. And people say, oh, we want to go back to the New Testament church. But they don't want to go back to the doctrines of the New Testament church. Well, he arrived in Auburn and he found the opposition. These ministers knew nothing of me personally, but they had been influenced by false reports that they had heard. But soon after, he says, I arrived in Auburn, I learned from various sources that a system of espionage was being carried out that was intended to result in an extensive union of ministries and churches to hedge me in and prevent the spread of the revival connected with my labors. My mind soon became troubled by the extensive working of this system of espionage. Mr. Frost of Whitesboro had come to a considerable knowledge of the facts, and he communicated them to me. I said nothing publicly or privately to anybody on the subject, but simply gave myself to prayer. I looked to God for his direction with great earnestness day after day, asking him to show me the path of duty and to give me the grace to ride out this storm. I will never forget what a scene I passed through one day in my room at Dr. Lansing's in Auburn. The Lord showed me, as in a vision, what was before me. He drew so near to me while I was engaged in prayer that my flesh literally trembled on my bones. I shook from head to foot under a full sense of the presence of God. At first, and for some time, it seemed more like being on the top of Mount Sinai amid its thundering and lightning than in the presence of the cross of Jesus Christ. Never in my life was I so awed and humbled before God as then. Nevertheless, instead of feeling like fleeing, I seemed drawn nearer and nearer to God seemed to draw nearer and nearer to the presence that filled me with such unutterable awe and trembling. And after a season of great humiliation before him, there came a great lifting up. God assured me that he would be with me and would uphold me, that no opposition would prevail against me, and that I had nothing to do in regard to this matter but to focus on my work and wait for the salvation of God. I can never fully describe the sense of, of God's presence and all that passed between God and my soul at that time. It led me to be perfectly trustful and perfectly calm and to have nothing but the most 
perfectly kind feelings toward all who were arraying themselves against me. I felt assured that everything would come out right and that my true course was to leave everything to God. And as the storm gathered and the opposition increased, I never for one moment doubted how it would end up. I was never disturbed by it. I never spent a, a, a waking hour thinking about it. Though to all outward appearance it seemed as if all the churches of the land, except where I labored, would unite to shut me out of their pulpits. This was indeed the avowed determination of the men who led this opposition. They were so deceived that they thought there was nothing to do but to unite and, as they expressed it, put him down. But God assured me that they could not put me down. A passage in the twelfth chapter of Jeremiah was repeatedly brought to my mind with great power. O Lord, you induced or enticed me, and I was persuaded. You are stronger than I and have prevailed. I'm in derision daily. Everyone mocks me. For when I spoke, I cried out, I shouted, violence and plunder, because the word of the Lord was made to be a reproach and a derision daily. Then I said, I will not make mention of him, nor speak any more his name. But his word was in my heart, like a burning fire, shut up in my bones. I was weary of holding it back. I could not. For I heard many mocking, fear on every side. Report, they said, and we will report it. All of my acquaintances watched for my stumbling, saying, Perhaps he can be induced or enticed. Then we will prevail against him, and we will take our revenge on him. But the Lord is with me as a mighty, awesome one. Therefore, my persecutors will stumble and will not prevail. They will be greatly ashamed, for they will not prosper. Their everlasting confusion will never be forgotten. But, O Lord, O Lord of hosts, who test the righteous and see the mind and heart. Let me see your vengeance on them, for I have, I have pleaded my cause before you. Jeremiah 20, verses 7 and 12. Now, I don't mean that this passage literally described my case or expressed all my feelings, but there was so much similarity in the case that this passage was often a support to my soul. The Lord did not allow me to take the opposition to heart, and I can truly say that I never had an unkind feeling toward any of those leading the opposition to the work of God. I recall having a strange feeling of horror in regard to a pamphlet published by Mr. Weeks, to whom I referred in chapter 12. Soon after he published it, he began to write a book that he called Pilgrim's Progress in the 19th Century. He was a man of considerable talent, but he was much deluded and exceedingly off-base in his theology. Despite the attitude that some of the Christians in Auburn were taking along with so many of the ministers abroad, the Lord soon revealed his work in Auburn. Pastor Lansing, 
had a large and very intelligent congregation. The revival soon took effect among the people and became powerful. It was at that time that a doctor in Auburn was so greatly blessed in his soul as to become quite another man. An elder in the Presbyterian Church, he was very timid, doubting kind of Christian who had little effectiveness because he had little faith. Soon, however, he became deeply convicted of sin and descended into the depths of humiliation and distress almost to despair. He remained in this state for weeks until one night in a prayer meeting he was quite overcome with his feelings and he sank down helpless on the floor. Then God opened his eyes to the reality of his salvation in Christ. This occurred just after I left Auburn and had gone to Troy, New York. The first time I saw him then, afterward, he exclaimed, Brother Finney, they have buried the Savior, but Christ is risen. He received such a wonderful baptism of the Holy Spirit that he's been rejoicing and the wonder of God's people ever since. <coughs> Pardon me. Partly because of the known dis- on the part of many, of many pastors and a good deal of opposition a number of the leading men in that large village took a strong stand against the work. But the Spirit of the Lord was among the people with great power. There was a hat maker residing in Auburn at this time. His wife was a Christian woman, but he was a universalist and an opposer of the revival. He carried his opposition so far as to forbid his wife's attending our meetings and for several successive evenings she did remain at home. One night as the bell began to ring for the meeting, half an hour before the assembly met, she was so troubled about her husband that she withdrew into private prayer, and she spent the half hour pouring out her soul to God. She told him how her husband behaved, that he would not let her attend the meetings. She drew very near to God, And as the bell was tolling for the people to assemble, she came out of her prayer closet and found that her husband had come in from his shop. As she entered the sitting room, he said to her, if she wanted to go to the meeting, he would accompany her. He afterward told me that he had made up his mind to attend the meeting that night to see if he could find something to justify his opposition to his wife, or at least something to laugh about and sustain him in ridiculing the the work of God. When he proposed to accompany his wife, she was very much surprised, but prepared herself, and they came to the meeting. Now, I'd been visiting and laboring with inquirers the whole day. I'd had no time to arrange my thoughts, or even to decide upon a text. During the introductory service, a text came to my mind. It was the word of the man with unclean lips who cried out, Let us alone! With these words from Mark one twenty four, I endeavored to show the conduct of those sinners who wanted to be left alone, 
who did not want to have anything to do with Christ. That reminds me, I went into a, a coffee shop yesterday, and there's a a young woman who works behind the counter that I've been witnessing to. Now, as I came to her yesterday, I said to her, I am praying every day for your salvation. I'm praying for you. She threw her hands up in horror, and she said, Don't pray for me. Don't pray for me. Well, she's told me in the past she's a pagan and she loves her sin and she doesn't want to stop sinning. I said, no, no. I'm going to pray for you every single day and I'm asking Jesus to love you and save your soul. As I walked away from the counter, she was shouting to me, don't pray for me. Oh, my brother, my sister, I want to tell you there's power when you begin to cry out to God for the salvation of the lost and the dying. Finney goes on, The Lord gave me power to give a very vivid vivid description of the course that this class of men was pursuing. In the midst of my sermon, I observed a man fall from his seat near the aisle and cry out in a most terrific manner. The congregation was very shocked, and the outcry of the man was so great, I stopped preaching and stood still. After a few moments, I requested the congregation to sit still while I went down to speak with the man. I found him to be the very man. The Spirit of the Lord had so powerfully convicted him that he was unable to sit on his seat. When I reached him, he had so far recovered his strength as to be able to be on his knees with his head on his wife's lap. He was weeping aloud like a child. He was confessing his sins, and he was accusing himself in a most terrible manner. I said a few words to him, but the Spirit of God has attention so thoroughly that I soon desisted from all efforts to make him listen to what I said. When I told the congregation who it was, they all knew him and his character, and it produced tears and sobs in every part of the house. I waited to see if he would be quiet enough for me to go on with my sermon, but his loud weeping rendered it impossible. I can never forget the appearance of his wife as she sat and held her held his face in her hands upon her lap. There appeared in her face a holy joy and triumph that words cannot express. Several prayed, and I dismissed the meeting, and some of the people helped this man to his home. He immediately wished them to send for some of his companions with whom he had been in the habit of ridiculing the work of the Lord in that place, he could not rest until he had sent for a great number of them and made confession to them, which he did with a very broken heart. He was so overcome that he could not get around for several days, and during this time he continued to warn his friends to flee from the wrath to come. As soon as he was strong enough to get around, he took hold of this gospel work with the utmost humility and simplicity of character, but with great earnestness. 
Soon afterward, he was made an elder in the church, and ever since he has been a wonderful example and a useful Christian. His conversion was so powerful and the result was so evident that it did a great deal to silence the opposition. Now, there were several wealthy men in the town who took offense at Dr. Lansing, myself, and the labors in that revival. And after I left, they got together and formed a new congregation. And most of these were, at the time, unconverted men. Let the reader bear this in mind, for I will have occasion to point out the results of this opposition in the formation of a new congregation. Subsequent conversion of nearly every one of these opponents. Soon after my arrival in Auburn, a striking thing occurred. My wife and I were guests of Dr. Lansing, the pastor of the church. The church members were much conformed to the world and were accused by the unconverted of being leaders in fashion and worldliness. Now, as usual, I directed my preaching to secure the reformation of the church and to get them into a revival state. And one Sunday I had preached as searchingly as I was able in regard to their attitude before the world. The word took deep hold of the people. At the close of my address, I called as usual upon the pastor to pray. He was much impressed with the sermon. Instead of immediately engaging in prayer, he made a short but very earnest address to the church, confirming what I had said to them. At that moment, a man arose in the balcony and said in a very deliberate and distinct manner, Dr. Lansing, I do not believe that such remarks from you can do any good. While you wear a ruffled shirt and a gold ring, and while your wife and the ladies of your family sit before the congregation dressed as leaders in the fashions of the day, it seemed as if this would kill Dr. Lansing outright. He made no reply, but cast himself across the side of the pulpit and wept like a child. The congregation was shocked and affected. They almost universally dropped their heads upon their seats in front of them, and many of them wept. With the exception of the sobs and sighs, the house was profoundly silent. I waited a few moments, and since Dr. Lansing did not move, I arose and offered a short prayer, and I dismissed the congregation. I went home with that dear wounded pastor, and when all the family had returned from the church, he took the ring from his finger. It was a slender gold ring that could hardly attract notice, and said that his first wife, upon whom her deathbed had taken it from her finger and placed it upon his and requested that he wear it for her sake. He had done so without a thought of it being a stumbling block. Of his ruffles, he said he'd worn them from childhood and did not think of them as anything improper. Indeed, he could not remember when he began to wear them, and of course he thought nothing about them. But he said, if these things are an occasion of offense to any, I will not wear them. He was a precious Christian man. He was an excellent pastor. Almost immediately after this, 
the church felt the need to make a public confession of their backsliding. And lack of Christian spirit. Accordingly, a confession was drawn up, covering the whole ground. It was read before the congregation, and the people stood, many of them weeping while the confession was read. From this point forward, the work went with greatly increased power. The confession was evidently a heart work and no sham. God most graciously and manifestly accepted it, and the mouths of the oppressors were shut. The fact is that, to a great extent, the churches and ministries were in a low state of grace, and these powerful revivals took them by surprise. I did not much wonder then, nor have I sensed, that those wonderful works of God were not well understood and were not received by those who were not in a revival state. There was a great many interesting conversions in Auburn and its vicinity, also in the neighboring towns throughout that part of the state as the work spread in every direction. In the spring of 1831, I was again in Auburn, and I saw another powerful revival there. That's from the book Holy Spirit Revivals, Charles Finney, 1826. We need a revival like that now. There is a coldness in the church today. There is a lack of love. There are judgments against one and another. There's a lack of love. And it breaks my heart. Is the church a safe place? What would make it a safe place? Well, obviously, what makes a church a safe place is when everybody lays their judgments down and they decide to wholeheartedly love and care and support one another. Does that mean I have to agree with everybody? Ah, no, not at all. But to lay aside coldness and hardness... I remember my father visited a church that I was later to become one of the pastors of. It was a church called Sligo. He said, Ray, I went to this church and it was so cold I thought I had to wear an overcoat and put on my ice skates. He said, I've never been to such a cold, hard-hearted church in my life. I thought about that as a young person planning on ministry. I recognize there has to be a a giving up of our hearts to Jesus. Not just where I think I should give up my heart to Jesus, but in every area of my life to lay down my judgments. Now, there are many who are opposed to me and to this radio broadcast. I love them anyway. I'm not going to engage in conflict with them. I have perfect peace and perfect trust. I'm going to walk in Jesus. 
straight ahead. This morning, on one of my pastoral calls, a brother in Christ referred me to a passage of Scripture that I immediately, after all of my tasks were finished, came home and into my office and opened the Word, and I read what he shared with me. And I want to share it with you. It is exceedingly powerful. Now, I'm also going to open the phone lines. If you would like to call, if you would like to be prayed for, if you would like to pray for Washington, D.C. and the churches for revival, you're welcome to call. The phone number is 877-534-0780. That's 877-534-0780. This is Titus, the second chapter. Begin reading in verse 11 in order to give you context. For the grace of God appeared, saving to all men, teaching us that having renounced ungodliness and the worldly lust, we should live soberly and righteously or innocently and godly in the new age, in the now age, right now he's saying, in the present, awaiting the blessed hope the appearing of the glory of the great God and of our Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself in our behalf in order that he might redeem us from every iniquity and might cleanse for himself a people as a possession, zealous of good works. You must speak these things both encourage and expose with all authority. Let nobody outthink you. Now, this is the passage that he read to me this morning. Titus, the third chapter. You must remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to slander no man to be peaceable, kind, showing all courtesy to all men. For we were also once foolish, disobedient, being led astray, serving various kinds of lusts, pleasures, spending life in malice and envy and hateful and hating one another, but when the kindness and love for mankind appeared from God our Savior, not out of the works by means of righteousness, which we did, but, but according to his mercy, he delivered us by a washing by means of his rebirth. By washing by means of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us abundantly by Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been made righteous or innocent by the grace of that one, we may become heirs according to the hope 
of eternal life. (laughs) That passage was of great encouragement to my heart. There are people that I know who are listening to this broadcast who are led astray by various lusts, loving the things of darkness, hearts filled with malice or envy or hate. What's my response to them to be? Kindness and love? Why? Because I once walked not washed by the blood, not washed by the new birth, not renewed by the Holy Spirit. I used to be one of those foolish ones who had no compassion in my heart for others. But Jesus has called us to lay down our judgments, to lay down our harshness, and to trust Jesus to work it all out. I guess that's where I am today. I'm trusting Jesus to work out what he wants to work out in your life. I come exposing the lies of this Gnostic gospel that teaches that you can be saved in the midst of your sin, continuing to walk in sin, but claiming that you have been washed by Jesus, but still you're filthy and dirty. I come exposing this, but not condemning you in it. I come exposing it and saying there's another way. There is the glorious, the glorious presence of Jesus Christ. There is the glorious love and mercy and kindness of God toward you. Now, we don't have most people falling down, repenting for their sins because the lies of the modern church have become so powerful and the accepted norm in the modern church is that all you have to do is name it and claim it. All you have to do is say, I accept Jesus as my Savior and I repent of my sin and I'm saved and I'm home free. Nothing could be further from the truth. But this vaccination against the real gospel of Jesus prevents me from ever feeling the need to weep before God over the hardness of my heart or to weep before God for my sin. But I know today that if you do not go through this breaking power of sin in your life, you cannot be saved. It's that simple. There must be today a turning. I don't say pray for a new heart. That's not the message I come to you with. I don't come saying, you need to pray for a new heart. 
just the opposite. I say, you need to go get a new heart. You need to cry out before God right now that he will come with great power and he will minister to your heart. So instead of telling you to pray for a new heart, I call on you right now to make yourselves a new heart through allowing the Holy Spirit to break your heart. The Spirit of God is striving with you right now to induce you into giving him full authority over your life to believe the word of Scripture, to enter at once into a life of total and complete devotion to Jesus Christ, a life of faith and love of Christian obedience. I'm trying to convince you to yield at once to the convictions of duty that the Holy Spirit is calling you to. I'm trying to show you that everything that you have done or said before you have submitted, believed, and given your heart to God was all sin. It was not what God required them to do, but was simply you were deferring repentance. You were resisting the Holy Spirit. If you resist the Holy Spirit, you will adopt religion. And that's what many of you have done. You are very religious. But in your heart, there's still bitterness, judgments, anger, hardness, lust for the world, lust for the things of darkness. We cannot make our own way to heaven, but we can determine that today, now, I will get right with God, and I will do what he has told me to do, no matter what the cost is to me personally. I will do what the Holy Spirit has told me I must do. Will you do that today? Will you do what the Holy Spirit speaks to your heart? Will you stop pretending that you can live in sin and still be saved? You can't. I know it is a comforting binky, but it will take you to hell. We are to be washed, we are to be cleansed, we are to be made into new creatures. The old is to be put down and the new is to rise up. We are to be made whole in Jesus Christ. Love, joy, and peace are to fill our hearts. We are to walk in newness of life. Now the kingdom of God is not food and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Is that your life? Do you have the fullness of innocence before God? Do you have the fullness of his provision? Do you have joy in the Holy Spirit? Those things only come after you've allowed him to lead you into the desert. <laughs> 
to teach you the way of the cross. For the one serving the Christ in these is well-pleasing to God. Do you know today whether or not you are well-pleasing to God? You can be well-pleasing to your wife or your husband or your friends. You can be well-pleasing to your boss. You can be well-pleasing to those who know you. But if you are not well-pleasing to God, you are not saved. So I'm calling you today to pursue, pursue, pursue with all of your heart the things of peace and the things that upbuild one another, not tear down. Let the criticism go. Let the judgments go. I trust what Jesus says to you and I trust what Jesus says to me in his word and by his Holy Spirit. Today I just come and cry out for you. Almighty God, I come to cry out for my brothers and sisters for I know, Lord, what Charles Finney had happened in 1826 in Auburn, New York, I know you want that to happen in Washington, D.C. I know it will not happen without the mighty power of your Holy Spirit and without men and women who will humble their hearts and weep before you and love one another, putting aside judgments, putting aside coldness, putting aside the lust of the flesh and the pride of life. I know revival cannot come to this city. Lord, I'm asking that you would bring your awesome Holy Spirit power to call us, to move us, to move upon us, to stir us up, to cause our hearts to be burning with zeal to know you, the living God of heaven, that there would be a passion in our hearts to walk with you, Jesus, and to get right with you, and to pay any price necessary to get right with you, to get a new heart. Lord, I thank you today for my brothers and sisters who hear this message with gladness of heart, who are walking clean before you, who have been filled by your Holy Spirit. I thank you that they join me in praying for this city. Lord, thank you. Lord, we just plead your blood now over Washington, D.C. Lord, I plead your blood over Donald Trump, our president. I plead your blood over the, the Congress, the cabinet, I plead your blood, Jesus Christ, over the churches of the Washington metro area, over the precious pastors, men and women, who are sold out to follow you. Lord, some are discouraged today. I ask that you would encourage them. Some, Lord, are teaching lies. I ask that you would confront them. I ask, Lord, for the coming of your Holy Spirit in this city. 
I ask for the breaking out of righteousness in this city. I ask, Lord, that you would put this city on its face before you, repenting of its sin, of its corruption. I pray you'll cause the senators and congressmen who are bought, who are corrupt, I pray for their salvation. I pray for the businessmen of this city who are utterly corrupt. Lord, I pray for their salvation. Lord, I pray today for every man and woman who is still caught in their sin that they would be delivered now by your precious blood. I pray for the coming of your Holy Spirit both in the church and in the marketplace. I pray, Lord, that you will extend the ministry of Pilgrim's Progress. I pray, Lord, that men and women will be turning to you under great conviction, weeping before you for their wicked, wicked lives. Lord, only you can do this. I just stand by faith, my Lord. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Great is your mercy, almighty God. Great is your kindness. Great is your wonderful, wonderful love. Lord, thank you for my brothers and sisters. And thank you for the sinners who are listening today. And thank you for what you're going to do in their hearts. I pray for them now. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we're coming up to the last day of this month. And I need your help. I knew I had to not do an offertory, but to proclaim God's word these two days that I was able to be on the air. I've been fighting with laryngitis. You can probably hear it in my deep voice today. I'm just praying that God will move in your heart to support financially this ministry. This is not listener-supported radio. This is Jesus-sponsored radio, and he'll move in your heart and tell you what to give. I pray you will be obedient to that call. We need to finish this month off. You can write to me at the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. That mailing address again is the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, Two two one nine five. Just make a note that the gift is for Pilgrim's Progress, and that's where every penny will go. I look forward to hearing from you. I was greatly encouraged when I went to the mailbox yesterday. Three of you had sent wonderful gifts for radio. Thank you. I wish I could name you, but I can't do that because it's Jesus who has moved in your heart. I also want to invite you to come and worship with the National Prayer Chapel. If, if your heart is hungry for Jesus, then please come. You will 
meet Jesus if you come to the prayer chapel. We meet at the All Saints Anglican Church. The All Saints Anglican Church is located at 14851 Gideon Drive, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22192. Drive around to the back side of the of the facility. It's a large large white church right next to the Hilton Memorial Chapel. Drive around to the back side and you'll see ground level a large white sign that says lower lobby. Come in those double glass doors and you'll find the worship center for the National Prayer Chapel immediately on the left hand side. So please All Saints Anglican Church 14851 Gideon Drive, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22192. Literally, we're just off Route 95 South. Go to our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com, nationalprayerchapel.com, and you'll find there a map to our location, and you'll also find this broadcast and many others in podcast form or video form. I pray God's richest blessing on you today, my brother, my sister. Thank you for listening. Please tell a friend. I love you. God bless you. I'll talk to you soon. To keep you from falling and to present.